Anybody really enjoy computer games or have in the past enjoyed uh, computer games? There are a few, few hands going up. I'm not huge into, into computer games and, and TV and that kind of stuff, but there's one game in particular that really hooked me. And uh, again, don't judge me. This was a long time ago, and uh, I'm not the man uh, I, I was. And uh, uh, this was a game called Diablo, an incredibly fun game. Uh, where you had to go through these levels, and at the end of the level, to get to the next level, you had to uh, beat a boss. And uh, each level you went to or, or passed, the, the bosses just got harder and harder and harder and harder uh, until you kind of got to the final level where you actually had to kill the devil. And uh, as a Christian and pastor, I did take some pleasure in, uh, in that final level. <laughs> Uh, but at, uh, there was this uh, ultimate showdown and this, uh, this moment where you couldn't avoid uh, this ultimate boss uh, that you would be confronted with. And I feel like that's kind of where we're at in uh, this apologetic series that we've been doing. Because uh, as we've been engaging with different topics and different obstacles that people have when it comes to uh, Christianity, the Bible, this uh, biblical worldview as a, opposed to a naturalistic or atheistic worldview, uh, we've been skirting a big issue. You know, you can speak to an atheist and they won't be able to kind of give you a proper answer for, you, you know, what actually caused you know, something to appear out of nothing, and uh, you'll talk about the Bible, and they'll haggle over, you know, these differences in texts, and, you know, you're going to be debating all of these kind of things, but those are minor bosses compared to what everybody kind of dances around and avoids. But ultimately, in engaging with this, you've got to come up against uh, this person of Jesus. And that's a major issue that at some point, every single person... Uh, has to kind of reconcile, uh, they have to figure out what do we do with Jesus? Because there isn't a scholar in the world who will tell you Jesus didn't exist. In fact, that is universally accepted. And I'm going to read a bunch of uh, quotes uh, as well in a, in a short few minutes. But even every single major world religion acknowledges Jesus. Nobody, absolutely nobody can say with any credibility, there was not this person, Jesus. Jesus is universally accepted as a historical figure. And his life and dating is accurate. And what people have to deal with is who is Jesus? And every single person has to kind of come up with the definition uh, who do I say Jesus is? Uh, the world will tell you who they think Jesus is, and they're going to try and tell you who you think or who you should think Jesus is. And that's what we're going to deal with tonight. Because I love this idea is because really it kind of fits into three categories. And uh, some people will put it into the category of like man, myth, or messiah. Or... Lord, liar, lunatic. Because at some point, you've got to deal with the historical person of Jesus. And so Buddhism teaches that Jesus was not God, but just an enlightened man like Buddha. 
Hinduism teaches that Jesus is an incarnation of God's like Krishna. Islam teaches that Jesus was a man and a prophet but was inferior to Muhammad. Jehovah Witnesses say that Jesus was merely the archangel Michael, a created being that became a man. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was only a man who became one of many gods. Uh, He was a polygamist and the half-brother of Lucifer. Uh, The New Age guru Deepak Chopra says Jesus is a state of consciousness uh, in which we should all aspire to. And uh, just for funsies, Scientology, that's old Tom Cruise, uh, teaches that Jesus was an implant uh, forced on Thetan about a million years ago. That's some very interesting uh, reading if you have (laughs) some spare time. But again, see, these are some major world religions. None of them say Jesus never existed. They all agree. Jesus, historical figure, lived, died. Obviously, we believe he rose again. But what do you do with this uh, imposing historical figure that so many people uh, agree to, uh, acknowledge, accept? And the problem actually doesn't stem from that he was a historical figure. Uh, The real problem comes in with what we call the exclusivity of Jesus. And the problem that people have with Jesus is not that he existed, but what he claimed and who he claimed to be and the exclusivity around Jesus. Think of these two statements, one that Jesus made, one made about Jesus. Uh, John 14 verse 6, Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is what we mean by the exclusivity of Jesus. Acts 4 verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. These are some of the problems that people have with Jesus. In fact, this is a problem that even Christianity has when it comes to uh, the exclusive claims of Jesus. Because we live in a culture of tolerance. We're not allowed to tell people that they're wrong. And it is insensitive to say that your belief system is incorrect. Right? Don't we live in a melting pot of cultures here in South Africa? Uh, how many different backgrounds, races, worldviews, belief system, uh, major world religions that are here, even here in Joburg. And you're seen as, as there's something wrong with you if you do not live uh, your life with a measure of tolerance. In fact, are we not told to embrace other people's belief systems? You know, even encouraged to speak to them, to hear their story, find out what they believe in, and to celebrate diversity. And it makes uh, this whole thing about the exclusivity of Jesus um, kind of hard for people to grasp. And uh, the dominant thought of today is this this phrase, uh, inclusivism, right? Everyone is right. And so if you believe that, great, we'll accept that. And you believe that, great, we'll accept that. And you believe that, great, we're going to accept that. Right, so atheism, all religions are wrong. Inclusivism, all religions are right. There's a a, a really good, I don't want to, I won't say good, it's got Will Ferrell in it. Uh, The movie Talladega Nights, uh, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Yeah, so... It's one of those uh, kind of uh, pop culture uh, classics. And uh, he's a race car driver. 
and he thinks he's on fire, and he climbs out of the car. He's running around in his underpants, and he's kind of like uh, shouting out all these prayers as he's running, think he's, think, thinking he's on fire. So he's like, help me, Jesus. Help me, Buddha. Help me, Allah. And he's like calling out all of these things. Help me, you know, God of the Jews. And he says like, help me, Tom Cruise, with your witchcraft. Oprah Winfrey, help me. And he's like just kind of praying to every single thing that he can uh, kind of imagine. And it's kind of this like hedging your bets, kind of trying to cover all your bases. But not, what do we mean when we say all religions are true? Are we going to, I'm going to accept you as correct. What do we mean by that? Because it's quite illogical to actually hold to an inclusivistic kind of thinking and approach. Because by doing that, you're offending 95% of the world. Because if you say to Palestinian Muslims that you and the Jews in Israel are going to heaven and vice versa, you're upsetting a whole bunch of people who have you know, killed each other over a significant period of time. There's, there's significant animosity there. They reject uh, inclusivism completely. And then we say all religions are true Again, what do we mean when we say that? Uh, are the Amorites in? Right? Because the Amorites used to worship by tearing off the limbs of babies while drums were being beaten so their parents couldn't hear the screams while that was happening to the babies. And then they were thrown into fire. When we say all religions are true, are, are, the, are they in? And, and, and what about Jim Jones who claimed to be God and convinced 900 of his followers uh, to kill themselves. I mean, is he in? And so then again, if we're going, well, all religions are right. I mean, who's in, who's out? And, and how can we even say that? Can you see, even going inclusivism is actually illogical. And even then, it's one of the most exclusive ways of thinking because of how many people you're just really hacking off uh, by saying that. Because no one else, at least of all the major religions, agrees with that statement, I mean, inclusivism sounds, you know, like 2018, and it sounds like the right thing to say, but you're excluding so much. And in fact, uh, it really is offensive and illogical. Mahatma Gandhi, uh, he said this, my position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. In other words, people claim all religions are fundamentally similar, but superficially different. Again, this is what people are believing. The truth is they are superficially similar and fundamentally different. Uh, most religions will have kind of some golden rule elements, usually around morality. Try to be a good person, you'll be reincarnated, you know, just uh, kind of stay away from evil. It's all, all, all around being good. But they actually differ on major things like sin, salvation, heaven, hell, and Jesus. And the reality is, two opposing ideas can't be true. I mean, no matter how much you want the truth, you want to believe it's true, it's not. For example, if it's raining outside, and I believe that it is not raining outside, and I go out, no matter how much I believe the truth that it is not raining, what is going to happen? I get wet, 
right? The truth is it's raining, not whether I believe it's true or not. If it's raining and I go outside, I'm, I'm going to get wet, I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you at a sports game or a music concert, the, the movies, where you're sitting and somebody comes up to you and says, sorry, you're in my seat. Right? That's quite an awkward moment because uh, what do you do? You go, no, sorry, um, I actually am in my right seat. And uh, what you have to do is you've got to pull out your tickets. And most times, in fact, 100% of the time, someone's wrong. Right? It's not the same seat. Someone is sitting in the wrong seat. Either the person coming to you is wrong or you are wrong, right? And so this is where we're at because either Jesus is the Son of God or he is not. Both those claims can't be true because if you look at saying inclusivism, you know, you take your top 10, 11 world religions excluding Christianity, everyone acknowledges Jesus, not the exclusive claims that he is the son of God. When you get to Christianity, we go, here are the exclusive claims of Jesus, and they are 100% true. Who's right, who's wrong? Because inclusivism will then be illogical. We're going, you know, it makes no sense. And so we need to then deal with these claims. Either Jesus is the son of God, or he is not. Before we get to that, and we'll come back to that towards the end of tonight, we need to deal with something that might be a little bit foreign to most of you tonight, but it is a problem for a number of people when it comes to dealing with uh, the person of Jesus and his claims about being God or not. And it's something called the Christ myth. And um, just a show of hands, has anybody ever heard of uh, this theory called the Christ myth? All right, so this is quite new to most of you. Um, so there was a movie that went viral a little while ago, a couple of years now, called Zeitgeist. And uh, this was like a conspiracy uh, theory uh, movie dealing with a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, that's where this uh, Christ myth became very popular. Now, in a sense, the Christ myth is, is this, that there are many myths long before Jesus about God's dying Raising again, uh, who could heal people, walk on water, born of a virgin, uh, feeding thousands of people, having 12 disciples, uh, dying for three days and rising again. Right, so this is the claim that, uh, in other words, Jesus is actually just another person in a long line of mythical claims and of gods who basically... Everything that you believe about Jesus, you can be found somewhere else in history and that the disciples of Jesus just really borrowed from a very uh, clear mythology onto himself and, and that's the claims of Jesus. He's nothing special. He's just one part of a whole bunch of mythology. And this does need to be dealt with because, uh, again, we were chatting to one of our, our young adults and that came up in, in her university class that the people were going like, I don't believe in Jesus because of the Christ myth. And so, again, if we think back to last week and if you missed last week uh, around how do we know the Bible is true, a uh, really important uh, message in the series. And some of the stuff is there. The difference between all of these mythological God claims is that when it comes to Jesus, remember, we've got all the eyewitness accounts, right? 
So every eyewitness, uh, we have the biographies, autobiographies. Uh, everybody who wrote stuff about Jesus was in the lifetime, or in their lifetime, 40 years plus. And uh, even then, we have what we call like the non-biblical sources around Jesus. Remember, last week we spoke about the non-biblical uh, proof to uh, the Bible. Again, there are non-biblical sources uh, that give proof to the person of Jesus. And these were people who were hostile to Christianity. And these are important. So here's some names. All right. So um, many of these people were hostile to Christianity. Many of them were hostile to Judaism. And uh, if you want these names from me afterwards, I'll give them to you. But just uh, for, for uh, just hear these names. Thallus, Tacitus, uh, Flagon, Pliny the Younger, Josephus, Lucian, Cetus. These are... Uh, hostile to Christianity, non-biblical, Roman uh, scholars, Greek scholars, uh, historians uh, who documented stuff. Now, when you take what, and it's going to come up on the screen behind me, what we've done is we've put together all of their claims about Jesus. So what I'm going to read and what you're going to read with me on the screen uh, in debunking the Christ myth are hostile people towards Christianity, not Christians, these are non-biblical, uh, scholarly documentation, historical uh, accounts of Jesus all put together into one kind of big paragraph. So this is what these guys say about Jesus. So Jesus was born and lived in Palestine. He was born supposedly to a virgin, had an earthly father who was a carpenter. He was a teacher who taught that through repentance and belief, all followers would become brothers and sisters. He led the Jews away from their beliefs. He was a wise man who claimed to be God and the Messiah. He had unusual magical powers and performed miraculous deeds. He healed the lame. He accurately predicted the future. He was persecuted by the Jews for what he said. Betrayed by Judah is Carito. He was beaten with rods, forced to drink vinegar, wear a crown of thorns, he was crucified on the eve of the Passover, and this crucifixion occurred under the direction of Pontius Pilate during the time of Tiberius. On the day of his crucifixion, the sky drew dark, and there was an earthquake. Again, same accounts in the Bible. These are non-biblical people who did not write this, having read the Bible. These were their own historical accounts of what happened. Afterward, he was buried in a tomb, and the tomb was later found to be empty. He appeared to his disciples, resurrected from the grave, and showed them his wounds. These disciples then told others Jesus was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Jesus' disciples and followers upheld a high moral code. One of them was named Matthew. Matthew. Uh, the disciples were also persecuted uh, for their faith, but were martyred without changing their claims. They met regularly to worship Jesus, even after his death. These are hostile claims about who Jesus was, or hostile sources. So again, if you're thinking about Christ, the Christ myth, and him being likened to uh, mythological uh, people, he stands apart so much more because of the eyewitnesses' accounts from a biblical point of view, and we know the authority and the truthfulness of the Bible, and now all of these claims by eyewitnesses and of non-biblical hostile sources to the person of Jesus. Okay, so going back to those myths, right? So the claim is that these myths had a God 
man-like figure who could heal people, walk on water, born of a virgin, feeding uh, thousands of people, having 12 disciples, dying and, and raising again. We're not going to go into all of them, just two main uh, examples of the Christ myth. And these are the two main ones. And the first one is Horus, uh, the Egyptian god Horus. So it's claimed that Jesus had, uh, Jesus, Horus had 12 disciples. Now it's interesting because there's not a single Egyptologist who would agree with that statement. There is nothing found in uh, the Egyptian book of the dead that will back that claim. And there is not a single set of hieroglyphics that will back up the claim that Horus had 12 disciples. In fact, what you do find is that he had four disciples or four followers. And it was a turtle, a bear, a lion, and a tiger. All right, so again, this is just what they have found. And they claim that Horus was born of a virgin uh, but if we look at the story, and this is what you can find about Horace's conception, uh, please, if you find this offensive, I apologize. We learn that his mother's name was Isis and his father's name was Osiris. Osiris was in a fight with another god in which uh, he was killed and chopped into pieces. Uh, the story goes that Isis gathered up all the pieces and then hovered over his uh, severed phallus. And uh, again, to parallel that with Jesus' virgin birth, I think is a big stretch. They also claim that Horus rose from the dead, but in almost every single one of Horus's stories, he didn't die. There is one story where he does die, and his body is chopped up into pieces and thrown into a river, but then he's fished out by crocodiles. And so, uh, again, people will go, there's this Christ myth, Jesus is actually just like Horus. In fact, if you do just a little bit of research into, uh, as I mentioned, the non-biblical sources uh, about Jesus, what the Bible says about Jesus, and some proper scholarly look at to the claims about Horus, you can find there is no similarity whatsoever. And the other main one is called Mithras. And uh, the claims about Mithras was that he was born fully formed out of a rock with a dagger in one hand and a torch in another. And they go, look, it's the same as the virgin birth. Uh, I can't see how that in any way is linked to the virgin birth to say that those two are the same thing. Now, there's a big problem with Mithras, and that is that Mithras and what we know about him comes from the third and the fourth century after Jesus. And so that means all of the stuff comes after Christ's death and resurrection. And in fact, we've got documents from early Christian leaders, namely uh, Tertullian and Justin Martyr, and they actually claim that everything that is taught about Mithras is actually borrowed from Christianity, not the other way around, which is really, really interesting. So again, all this evidence points to the fact that there was this unique historical figure called Jesus who made these unique claims and did these uh, very unique and incredible things, not bo uh, borrowed from any uh, sort of uh, mythology. And then there's a final obstacle that people will try to bring to dodge uh, this uh, massive looming a thing called dealing with Jesus and actually deciding who he is. And so they'll go, okay, okay, all right, we agree that um, Jesus is a historical figure. Okay, we submit to the fact that the Christ myth is false. But Jesus never claimed to be God. So what do you do about that? 
Uh, he never uttered the words, I am God. Uh, so there we go, Christians. It's a whole waste of time, everything that you believe. So again, we've got people like Julius Caesar. He claimed to be God. David Koresh claimed to be God. Jim Jones claimed to be God. Uh, just because you claim to be God doesn't make you one. But then when we look at Jesus, he did claim to be not just God, but the one and only true God. Uh, the God who made all things, the God of Abraham and Moses, the God who is sovereign, who alone forgives sin and deserves our worship. So let's, uh, for a few minutes now, we're going to get into Scripture, deal with the claims of Jesus. Where and how did he say that he was God? Uh, The first one is John chapter 8, verse 58, if you want to write any of these down. So John 8, verse 58, and this is Jesus says, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Right now again, again, Craig, but here's the thing, he did not say, I am God. But what Jesus is saying here is the very words, and now uh, this is also, maybe just bank this what atheists and, and people who want to argue these things don't take into account when analyzing Jesus is the kind of the, the Hebraic uh, Jewish culture and understanding and thought pattern and, and worldview that Jesus is in and speaking into. So what the audience hears when Jesus says these words is different to what you and I need to kind of work back and understand. They immediately knew what Jesus was saying when he said these words. And they would have got very upset because this is going right back to the time of Moses when God's people are in slavery in Egypt. And God is calling Moses to set them free and they're calling out for God to save them. And when God speaks to Moses in a burning bush and he says, well, who do you, who do I tell the people you are? And he just says, I am. The eternal God who has always existed, the maker of heaven and earth. He says, I am. And so when Jesus, speaking to the crowd, says, uh, again, I tell you the truth, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus is claiming to be God, and this is how we know this. Uh, Again, read verse 59. At this They picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself and slipped away from the temple grounds. Again, just one example of how Jesus did in fact claim to be God. And it was so much so that people wanted to stone him for that. I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 2. If you have time this week, I encourage you to read Start to finish in one go if you can. Try to carve out a little bit of time to read the whole of the book of Mark. And I want you to read it through the lens of Jesus showing everyone that he is God. Because it seems as though the writer of Mark had a bit of an agenda to show everyone that was was reading this that Jesus is in fact God. And so um, I'm going to read a a little bit for us. It is going to come up on the screen, but I do encourage you to follow in Mark chapter 2. 
And we're just going to pick up the story here, and there's some incredible stuff happening. And again, remember the context. This is a, a Jewish context, Jewish thinking, and so a lot of the stuff they would have just picked up immediately with what Jesus was saying. But I'll unpack it a little bit for us, because I just find this passage so exciting in the whole debate around the exclusivity and exactly who Jesus claimed to be and what he did. So a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum and the people heard uh, that he had come home, so many gathered that there was no room left, uh, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered him or lowered the mat uh, the paralyzed man was lying on. And then Jesus saw the faith, their faith. He said to the paralytic, "Son, your sins are forgiven." Again, imagine the scene: Jesus teaching, packed out, people can't get in. And you kind of like, I don't know what you guys would do if this like kind of scratching, scratching, scratching right above me and uh, kind of crumbling and a whole big hole kind of appears and guys lay a, a paralyzed guy uh, down on the mat in front of me. I don't know uh, how that would have been experienced by everyone in the room. And Jesus kind of just stopping, waiting for this thing to kind of unfold and the guy's there and, and he just goes, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, you've got Jewish leaders there. You've got teachers of the law. They're uh, uh, getting quite upset. And there we go. We pick up. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These are their internal thoughts. Immediately, uh, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, I tell you, take up your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now again, we know the story from a Christian point of view, and we go, oh yeah, this is Jesus, uh, he's God, he can heal people, and he does this. But there's a very interesting phrase that Jesus uh, gives himself in this passage, and it's the phrase, son of man. Right, so again, here's the scene. There's this paralytic guy here. Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders are going, blasphemy. That's for God alone to do. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus, being God, knows everything, knows their thoughts, and he goes out loud. He says, okay, so what is easier? To say your sins are forgiven? Again, how do we know that? Jesus could have said that nothing uh, would have changed. It wouldn't have had an effect on, on anyone. And then he goes, so that you know the Son of Man. And I don't know what it would have been like in that room. But if you were a, a Jewish person at that time, and you heard the phrase, Son of Man, I wonder if you would have got a little bit of goose flesh. I wonder, uh, kind of, everybody would have kind of sat up. Because that's a very important phrase. And you just need to look in some of the Old Testament books like Daniel where that phrase comes up a couple of times. 
that phrase started to come into uh, Jewish thought and into Jewish hope because that phrase was given in the hope and the promise that God was going to send someone who did have all of that authority. That phrase came, in fact, if you do a search on, on any kind of Bible program, it comes up something like 196 times, 83 times alone in the New Testament. It's dealing with the hope of the Messiah. That phrase, son of man, refers to the one God was going to send that was going to make everything right. That was the phrase, son of man. And this is a very big deal when it comes to Jesus claiming to be God. Because right here, Jesus is not just only claiming to be God, but claiming to be the one, the promised one, the Messiah, the one God was going to send. The hope that every single person had. When it came to Passover, there was always an empty seat in their households. There was a genuine anticipation for every single person in that room of that God was going to send someone. They were waiting for the Messiah. And here Jesus in front of everyone says, just so you know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sin, take up your mat and walk. And he gets up and he walks. Announcing to everyone in the room, I am God. I am the one that has promised to make everything right. And again, if you carry on going uh, through the book of Mark, and again, I encourage you to read it through this lens because he then drives out demons. He raises dead people to life. There's a raging storm and he gets up and he says, wind and waves, be still. And they listen to him. And I get gooseflesh every time we sing that song. The waves and wind still know his name because they are obeying their creator. And who but God can take the lunch of a little boy and multiply it that it feeds 5,000 people that there's leftovers and not a single person. And again, that's just 5,000 men. Nobody accounts how many women and children were at that event that Jesus uh, catered for. But nobody disputes the fact that what started out and how much food was presented to everybody. When Jesus claims to be God, he backed it up, and I'm so excited for next week. But that is uh, where we kind of deal with the fact that Jesus did, in fact, claim to be the one true God who had authority over life, over death, over creation. And this is why I love the Mark 2 passage, because he proves that he has authority over your sin and my sin. C.S. Lewis Again, as he deals with this issue, he says, people, you've got to make a choice. You can't ignore Jesus and you've got to make a decision. Was he a liar? Uh, was he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? And I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg 
or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. That's really important. None of this inclusive stuff. Jesus stands apart in the exclusive claims that he makes about himself and backs that up with everything that was said about him by all the eyewitnesses in the autobiographies that were written about him. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. And so your choice is to either write him off or to fall at his feet and worship him. Again, we're going to read one more uh, passage of scripture. Again, one of my ultimate uh, passages in the Bible. And that's hard because I love almost, uh, not almost, I love everything in here. But just one that's huge for me. Because again, it's who it was written by. So if you want to turn with me quickly to the book of Colossians. It's a little bit further in the New Testament, chapter 1. Now the writer of this passage is who we call the Apostle Paul, or Paul. And he is responsible for writing most of the New Testament. But before he gets to writing letters of encouragement to churches like this one, is he was a government-sanctioned terrorist. That he was going around uh, with the authority to round up Christians and have them killed. And then he was on a trip in this uh, one part of his life that he was going from one town to another uh, en route to go and find Christians and have them arrested. On that trip, he meets Jesus. Jesus reveals himself to him. And for the rest of his life, he uh, ends up serving Jesus. In fact, he is killed for being a Christ follower. He was a Christian hunter. He found, arrested, and killed Christians to becoming one of the greatest missionaries the church has ever known, responsible for writing most of our New Testament, uh, being killed for being a believer. And this particular letter, he writes being in prison for being a Christian. All right, so this passage that he's writing, or this uh, letter is writing to a church, uh, the church of Colossae, that's why it's called Colossians. And, and, And he's writing to encourage them. So I'm giving a lot of context because it's quite important. But he's in prison for being a Christian and he writes this. And it's so interesting because this part of chapter one, he kind of goes on a tangent because he's writing a warm greeting. He's encouraging them. And it's kind of like he writes the word Jesus and like kind of like just kind of goes ballistic. And, and he just gets so overboard excited in chains, in prison for being a Christian. And, and he goes... He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And again, stop, because this is Greco-Roman Jewish culture. When we read firstborn, that's not what firstborn means to them. What they hear when firstborn is the place of number one uh, prominence. Uh, There is no one who has as much authority, as much importance, as much prominence as the one who holds the title of firstborn. People don't hear actual, like biological, firstborn of your children. They hear absolute authority and all prominence when they hear that phrase. 
So it says, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, or rulers or authority, all things were created by him and for him. Uh, He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to him all things, whether things on earth and things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical power through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. I love it so much because I just I don't know what he was doing in his prison cell as he was writing these words, but what could move someone to just get so excited, this former enemy of Christ? to just being able to with such joy declare who he is. And it's important for us tonight because we're going to go have communion. And what this means for us as Christians is that we're very much on the side that he is Lord and that he has authority over all things, including your sin and my sin. And the reason we do this and we go to this table and we take a piece of bread, remembering what Jesus said to his disciples, guys, this is my body broken for you the night before he was going to the cross where he was going to take your sin and my sin upon himself and actually deal with it before God. The the reason we do that is because he had authority to do that and did that. And it's the reason why we take a little cup of grape juice that is symbolic of his blood And he says, as he poured uh, wine into the cups of his disciples, saying, in the same way, my blood is going to be poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this and remember me. Hopefully, if you have been on the side of the fence where you've not been sure about who Jesus is, you've gone, great teacher, did some cool things, don't really know how he did it, but I'll, I'll acknowledge that he did good things. Hopefully tonight that you've gone, actually, he is God. And I invite you to come and talk to me and we'll pray together so you can come and enjoy uh, this, uh, what we call communion meal as we remember what he did for us as our God. The one who had authority over my sin and in love went to the cross to make sure that I can stand blameless before him as I repent of my sin. I'm excited about next week because we're again staying on Jesus because uh, the next and final hurdle that everybody has when it comes to any sort of uh, proof about the Bible is does Jesus rise from the dead? And his resurrection is his full vindication of every single claim that he made about being God. And next week we're going to spend um, this time exclusively dealing with the historical proof of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But tonight, let us come together and remember what our Lord God did for us in the forgiveness 
of our sins. I'm going to pray, and then as you are ready, uh, come forward, take a piece of bread, uh, take the cup, and let us remember that. And if you need to spend some time doing some repenting, if you've uh, not actually made that kind of switch in your mind by going, actually, I'm going to come and I'm going to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord, I invite you to do that tonight. Uh, and a great time to do that in a very safe space, surrounded by people who have made that step themselves. And then uh, I'll come and, and end off tonight. Jesus, I want to thank you that you are my God. And I want to thank you that you're a God of love. And that you proved that you love me by the cross. But that you have authority over my sin. You prove that over and over again by every single thing that you did. You raised people from the dead. You healed people. You told lame people to take up their mats and walk. You calmed storms. You uh, multiplied food. Just every single miracle that you did was just proof over and over and over again that you are God, the creator, Lord God of everything. And that you stand apart. And that you can make every single exclusive claim that you did because you are the one true and only God. You are Lord. We worship you and you alone. And tonight we're just going to remember that the reason you came as Jesus was to live the life that we could not live and die the death that we were supposed to die but that you did that for us as a sin offering, taking my sin, everything that separated me from God so that I could have your righteousness and stand holy and blameless before God the Father. We praise you for that. Amen.